We now have great pleasure in listening to the word of exhortation from our brother Michael. My dear brother and sisters, uh, reading through the prophets, and uh, at the moment we're considering uh, Isaiah, it fascinates us to study the many prophecies revealing exactly what will happen in the future, and in many cases, long into the future. So. How incredible a great creator. But our mind, our memory is so, so different from that of our creator, not worthy of comparison really. God's incredible foreknowledge amazes me. In fact, it's impossible to understand. But there again, there are many things we cannot understand. And for that matter, we're not meant to. We cannot comprehend the infinite because we are finite. We cannot understand eternity because we are mortal and we don't live for very long. But what really is incredible is the fact that God knows the end from the beginning. It's impossible for us to understand this, and it's meant to be impossible for us to understand. As mortals, God has greatly limited our understanding. And there are countless unexplainable things which we take for granted, really. But of course, to the saint who has accepted the call or invitation of the gospel and was baptized into the all saving name of Christ his or her life is now on a different plane to someone in the world so whatever problems we have in life and uh, sometimes they are rather excruciating we need to realize from what Paul says that we are being put to the test and I feel that all too often we do not see it quite like that. But we need to take to heart the failure of Israel. And that many, many times God was testing them. But they refused to see it like this. And they got it in for poor old Moses. He really had it. So... The life of a faithful believer is a mixture of countless, what we call chance happenings, and many instances of testing our faith. In Luke 13:4, Jesus referred the hearer, his hearers to the 18 upon the whom upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell ye no. Now, I would class that as a chance happening, you see. But I was fascinated to read the chapter in the recent book called Puzzling Passages. And 
there was one chapter regarding Moses and Elijah in the Transfiguration. And for a long time, the question has arisen, were Moses and Elijah there in person at the Transfiguration? Some think yes, and some say no. Others say, well, I just don't know. But on page 83 of this book, it states, While the Lord was praying, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment became white and dazzling. That's Luke's record. Well, Matthew and Mark say he was transformed, of course, which means to change shape or form or whatever. But Matthew explains what the change was. His face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as the light. And it was at this point, two men, as Luke tells us, appeared, identified as Moses and Elijah, and began talking to the Lord. So it seems that Jesus spoke to them, using their names, but, to quote, they appeared in glory, which seems to imply that this was post-resurrectional glory, and may have a significant bearing on our understanding of the transfiguration. We may add to this what we read in Mark chapter 9 regarding the Lord's comments leading up to the transfiguration, regarding those who would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and the kingdom of God come with power. They would see that before their death. The kingdom of God with power. Now this implies that they would somehow experience the reality of the future kingdom there and then. And this was fulfilled in their experience of the transfiguration. Yes, delightful, isn't it? So, resurrected in glory, then they are in the future kingdom but they are speaking of an event which he was about to accomplish, and that is still to occur. If this was only a vision and not a reality, it's difficult to see what benefit it would have had for Jesus with respect to the discussion that Moses and Elijah had about the Lord's decease. Jesus knew that this was his destiny, and he knew the details. On the other hand, if this was a real experience, and the future had, as it were, travelled back to the present, this would have been of great comfort to the Lord, for the words of Moses and Elijah would indicate that his commission would end in success. And the quotation from this book his rejection and suffering would not be lessened, but it would not be in vain. And in the book, there's a footnote which says, There would be no difficulty for the eternal God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, and not a prisoner of time as we are, in arranging time travel in which the present 
was transported into the future or the future brought back to the present. End of quotation. So, it seems most likely that what the disciples observed on the Mount of Transfiguration was not merely a vision, but the actual presence of Moses and Elijah as a consequence of time travel to the kingdom. And I like that description of our current standing, that we are now, at this very moment, prisoners of time. There are many things it's impossible for us to understand, as I've said, you know, eternity, infinity, gravity, light, and so on. But we have to believe these things, even though it's absolutely impossible for us to understand. We have to believe these things. But the point is, this great creator has designed the most remarkable and wonderful gift it's possible to have. The gift of eternal life. But that's one thing most people can't take in. And why? Because it's impossible to understand. Now the point I'm making is, it's impossible to for us to understand infinity and gravity and all the rest of it. But this is something else we can't understand, eternal life. And because they just can't understand that, they just won't accept it. It's sad, isn't it? But we just can't take in eternity, you know, no beginning. God, the creator, never had a beginning. Yet, of course, we know it has to be, don't we? In our mind, we can go back and back trillions and trillions and trillions and ever more trillions, if you like, and we can never ever come to a beginning because there is no beginning. You can just imagine a few hundred years ago or a few thousand years ago, yes, that's not very long really, Man couldn't understand distance, and some thought that if you kept on travelling, you would at one stage come to the end, and if you carried on, you'd drop off the world, just like that. Uh, many centuries ago, man couldn't understand the never-ending surface of the planet until they realised the Earth is a globe, and we are kept on the surface by the force of gravity which man can't understand. But the word of God in Job revealed thousands of years ago that the earth was a sphere. Another thing is, and we just can't understand infinity, you know, we can't understand travelling through space at trillions of miles an hour, if you like, and never come to an end. A complete and utter mystery going on and on and on for countless trillions of miles and never coming to, the, to an end of space. But what we do know of all creation is that it works in circles, from the atom up. So does this apply to eternity? No beginning? Well, you must do it, but how? I don't know. We're not meant to understand. It's not given to us to understand. But time and space is no barrier to immortals. Uh, you know, uh, out in space... Uh, distances measured by light years. Um, some stars are 6,000 light years away and so many more. And I'm, I'm wondering, it's just my thought, you know, 
I'm wondering that if any mortal transported himself 6,000 light years in space, we would see with wonderful immortal eyes this planet at creation, Adam and Eve and so on. Just my thought. But all this makes us realise how very, very limited we are in these days of weak mortality. But I love that phrase, prisoners of time. And we are very much prisoners of time. It, that's what binds us. But God's foreknowledge is far beyond our understanding. And we see this um, throughout Scripture. <clears throat> Even in Eden, God, God could see the end from the beginning. He could see his purpose for the whole of that 6,000 years with mankind. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> Jesus, before he left his disciples, told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. Now this tells us that the, that the word is the pulling power. And those who hear it, accept it, obey it, live in accordance with what is written, will have eternal life. That's what God has promised. So of the many thousands who have heard the inspired word, a few accept it, of course, but most don't. God, however, God knows every single one who will accept this offer of salvation. But under no circumstances does he make them accept it. It is the hearer's free will. Yes, God's foreknowledge amazes us. Although vast numbers have been called or invited, only a few are worthy, we are told. Uh, Brother Thomas said somewhere, those who accept the call or invitation are known as the called, even though most of the called are not accepted. It's like us inviting someone to a party and just a few turn up and most don't. Those who are there we call, well, they have the invited, although lots of people outside were invited, but they weren't. And they didn't bother to turn up. But Ephesians 1.4 says, chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, every true believer is a saint, true believer. And right from the start, God had this plan for them. This faithful class, the class, they are predestined to glory. And this was known right from the start. That well-known chapter in Romans 8, uh, from 28, what's it say there? Um, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. 
And who be called, they be also justified. And who be justified, them he also glorified. Them he also glorified. Oh, God has marked out the destiny of his chosen ones. And verse 30 tells us, whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. This, of course, is the final stage of the divine purpose. And Paul uses the, the past tense because the glory that will be given to the saints is accounted in the Father's mind as being accomplished already. You're already accomplished to the point. So this one verse, verse 30, contains the plan of salvation in a nutshell. Those predestinated to glory. But the point is, no individual is predestinated to glory. No individual is predestinated to glory. A Christadelphian cannot believe such error because that is the fallacy of Calvinism. But it is all those who are in the household of faith who will be saved. And God, in his foreknowledge, in his foreknowledge, he knows every single one who will be accepted. It is that class of faithful who are predestinated to glory. Yes, uh, the pattern of the Passover is a good example. All in the house, with doorsteps and lintels sprinkled with blood, they were safe, salvation if you like. When we say all in the household will be saved, we don't mean all who have the name Christadelphian, of course. We know some have become immersed for ulterior motive. For instance, I, I know one sister who, after her father died, left the truth, saying that she only came in because of the family. Now, if, if that was her state of mind when she was immersed, that wasn't acceptable baptism, was it? So, the scriptures clearly tell us that uh, the wheat and the darnel grow together until the time of harvest. And this growing together presents a test to the truly faithful. It really does. There's um, one episode that upset me um, some years ago. Um, I was at, uh, at a certain meeting and a brother had four sons. Um, three had accepted the truth, but one hadn't. And the father said he was not worried about that because God didn't want him. Well, how, I thought, well, how sad for a father to say that. And I told him what I thought. But, of course, the real reason, of course, was that it was the son who didn't want God. God wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to accept him. I, I read in an old dawn recently of uh, John 6.44... No man can come unto me except the Father which hath set me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. But how does God draw? It is to the drawing effect of the gospel. The drawing effect, effect of the gospel. 
So, firstly, it's God who makes the offer of salvation. The choice is there, accept it or reject it. Those who accept and are faithful are acknowledged as the chosen. But God only chooses those who accept the invitation in the first place. Reading from 1 Peter 2.4, Peter is referring to Jesus who is likened to a precious cornerstone, disallowed or rejected by men, but chosen of God and precious. So the faithful are then referred to as lively stones, being built up a spiritual house. Ye are the temple of the living God. Then verse 9 says, But ye are a chosen generation. Uh, Israel was uniquely the chosen nation, you know, the chosen people. But Peter was now stressing the fact that Gentiles have inherited all Israel's privileges. And that there is no need for them to feel inferior. Uh, of course, the Jews didn't like that, did they? But the point is, God, in his foreknowledge, he knew that Israel would reject him and reject his son, as many Old Testament prophecies prove. God knew all about this. But it has been said, well, what about the countless millions in China and other countries, uh, Muslim countries, for instance, where the Bible is banned, or used to be banned, maybe still is, I don't know. They've never, never had access to the Bible. Well, that's true. But it's important to realise that no one has the right to life. We all have this life by the grace of God. But regarding God's foreknowledge, Romans 4.17 reads, regarding Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations. I have made thee a father of many nations. And yet Isaac hadn't even been born then. And Paul quotes Genesis 75 to make the point that when God promises, it's as good as already done. Because what God promises is beyond doubt. It is, in one way, as good as already in force. If that, it then continues, And calleth those things that be not as though they were. In other words, no doubt whatever. So, the past tense is used for things he has promised many times even though the actual fulfilment still awaits the future, long into the future. So talking of present or past tense for future hope, uh, quite a few mentioned in Scripture, in fact, quite a list here. In 1 John 5, 13, ye know that ye may know that ye have eternal life. They didn't have eternal life, but so sure about it that uh, they've as good as got it if they're faithful. Soon, I mean, things like that, but quite a number of Passages like that. But the Bible often uses the present tense or even the past tense in relation to future events. Uh, God could call those things that be not as though they already were because of his power and his <coughs> determination to do them. Hence, Abraham lives in God's eyes. 
he sees Abraham in another time frame, the future time frame. And so such language used by Christ emphasises the certainty of the future reward for those who now believe, obey and endure to the end. We have such verses as John 10:28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Living in a future time frame, if you like. Ah, but what about Judas? John 17, 12, uh, speaking regarding his disciples, Jesus says, Those thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Uh, Judas, of course, was one of those given to Jesus by the Father, but Jesus knew from the Old Testament scriptures that one of his inner circle would betray him and, to quote, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I mean, Jesus knew his uh, Old Testament prophets of my hand, didn't he? And uh, I would suggest that although Jesus knew from the Old Testament that one of his uh, disciples would betray him, I would say that he didn't know which one it would be when he chose them. It's a thought, isn't it? But he, he certainly did later on. It, it, there's a quotation which says, he knew from the beginning that one would betray him. But uh, did he know who that was? Or was it just after the beginning that Jesus realised that he was the one because of the, the theft and all the rest of it? Uh, it's an interesting thought, really. Um, yes, it's uh, sad, isn't it? Did Jesus have to betray Jesus then? He says so in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. Judas wasn't even born then. Did Judas have to betray Jesus? Well, of course he did not, but God in his foreknowledge, that future time frame, he knew that Judas would betray his son. Another fascinating thought is that Jesus knew the prophets like the back of his hand, and Jesus knew that he would be cruelly taken. He knew that he would be whipped and spat upon, rejected. He knew that he would be crucified, he would be put to death. He knew all that and all the rest of it. And he many times told, he told his disciples this, uh, but they just couldn't understand what he was getting at, you see. But the point I'm getting at is Jesus could see life from that future time frame. And he knew from the prophets, which he knew at the back of his hand, as I've said, he knew he would suffer, but he knew he would come through all triumphantly, because the prophets told him so. And he knew he would be the king of the future age with the gift of immortality, because the prophets told, him, told us so. 
told him so. How much power Jesus had uh, to take himself to another time frame, I, I don't know that, I can't answer that. But throughout scripture, God's foreknowledge is exhibited. You know, a, a classic example is Moses and Pharaoh. But it states that the Lord, or Yahweh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. So, does this mean that Pharaoh had got a sin? Because it says that Yahweh had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, no, of course not. God does not make any man sin. But as in the case of Pharaoh, his heart was hardened by the circumstances of the situation. And those circumstances caused Pharaoh to sin. But the point is, God did not make Pharaoh, and he does not make anyone else to sin. So, time and chance. The events that have happened and are happening in the world, most of them are, shall we say, a happening of chance, if you like. That is, if it is not within the compass of the purpose of God's plan. But with God's foreknowledge, he knows everything that will happen, whether in his purpose or not. So everything that happens by chance, as we say, well, God knows that anyway. Uh, but there are so many things that happen in life that we don't like. And some things are really hard to take. And we've all been in that situation. But we can't blame God for it. But that's exactly what Israel did. Time and time again. <coughs> and they had to suffer for it. You can't blame God for what you are and what you're born like. Whether you're six foot nine or four foot two, you can't blame God for that. This is what I would call time and chance. I, I read recently that one in 5,000 women are born without a womb. Some are born blind. Some are born deaf. Or some other deformity. It is a chance happening. A malfunction in man's mortal makeup. Nothing to do with per personal sin, of course, uh, or the, the sins of the parents. Nothing to do with that, as Jesus said. Uh, but in one sense, at certain times, Jesus was not a prisoner of time. Before the trial of Jesus, Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, I'm not, I won't be offended. But Jesus said to Peter, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this very night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me three times. He must have been the world's most famous cockerel. But the point is, that came to pass exactly as Jesus said. But the point is, Peter did not have to sin so terribly. But Jesus, released from the shackles of time, shall we say, he knew exactly what would happen. 
Jesus knew that Peter would sin those three times. And he knew that cock would crow twice. So Jesus must have been in the future time frame. We just can't understand it, can we? Because we are prisoners of time. But although Jesus had such power, he also knew those lovely scriptures like the back of his hand. And in so many places revealed the terrible torture he would have to endure. You now despised and rejected of men. Jesus read that for himself. He knew that he'll be, he would be despised. He knew that he would be rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. What did Jesus think when he read those uh, from the prophets? Smitten of God. Afflicted. Wounded for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. It was the Lord's will. It was Yahweh's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. What did Jesus think when he read these from the these things from the prophets? The, a, the list goes on. Jesus knew he was going to suffer terribly. But on the other hand, he knew he would come through it all triumphantly because those same scriptures reveal that, for instance, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives and countless more, which we can't go into. But the point is, he joyfully looked for that wonderful time ahead. I, I know that word wonderful is a, a well-worn adjective used by Christian health in circles, but the time soon to dawn, it will be the height of wonder. Now, regarding the saints, uh, gender doesn't come into it in the future. The current role of male and female will be replaced with something far greater when the king takes his bride to himself. Have thou authority over five cities, over three cities, to rule as priests uh, in that age soon to dawn. Yes, that such a wonderful prospect lies ahead for us. It's up to us, of course, isn't it? We are each expecting the return of Christ. We don't know when, but God knows. Maybe Christ does now, I don't know, but he didn't know when he was on the earth 2,000 years ago. That's one thing he didn't know. But God in his foreknowledge knows the exact day and the, the exact hour. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about the Jubilee years and uh, I'm interested in that sort of thing. Um, and it's been pointed out that the only mention of Jesus between birth and the start of his ministry is when he was 12 years of age and he was in Jerusalem. And in, the, in those days I read that it was the age of the Bar Mitzvah, age 12. And he accompanied his parents 
to the feast of the Passover at Jerusalem. So Jesus at Jerusalem. And it's been calculated that Jesus was born about the year 5 BC. Can't be exact, but about the year 5 BC. So add 12 to that, and it comes to 7 AD. And it's suggested that that year could be accounted as a jubilee, a jubilee year you know, in Jerusalem. And if you add 40 jubilee periods to that, 49 times 40 equals 1,960. If you add 40 jubilee years from that 7 AD, it comes to the year 1967. 40 jubilee years from when Jesus was age 12 in Jerusalem. So, if 1967 can be accounted as a jubilee year, 1967, and you add a 49 jubilee year period to it, yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? Mind you, these are just my thoughts. But it suggested that the time of the ingathering, the autumn, something of vital importance might happen for Israel. Natural, Israel natural, and hopefully Israel spiritual. Anyway, there are so many thoughts. Uh, on this subject in the scripture, we only just sort of touch the brink of them really. But uh, I find it a fascinating subject. Yes, Jesus will come back at any time now. We need to be prepared for that glorious day. And in the meantime, we remember him, as we have been told in these emblems before us, and how he suffered so terribly for us. But as I've said, he knew that he would come through all this, these problems triumphantly and reign in Jerusalem in a future age and be with all his faithful ones and drink wine afresh in that kingdom. That's the time we're longing for now and we pray that it will be soon.